Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. As you may know, if you keep up with our social media, I am just back from a trip to Kurdistan. I always love being in that country or in that region. It's not technically a country yet. Um, And I love the Kurds, as you probably know. My history with the Kurds really began years ago when they began pouring into Nashville and some organizations that were involved with them at the time kind of invited me to work with them a little bit. And my role was never anything major, but I'll tell you what, it really, uh, really uh, caused me to lose my heart to the Kurds. So uh, having written the book, uh, The Miracle of the Kurds, uh, the Kurds invited me to come over. The KRG invited me to come back to Kurdistan and uh, spend some time there, lecture in some of the universities, spend some time with some of the officials. And uh, so I've done that. So let me tell you just a little bit about what I have seen in Kurdistan here in these last few weeks. Obviously, you have the situation with ISIS Uh, that is just horrible in the South. Uh, It's affected a great many things. What's it like on the ground there? Well, I I landed uh, in the beautiful Erbil Airport, an airport that is uh, quite large and sits on a huge piece of property. Obviously, uh, the KRG, the Kurdish regional government, intends to uh, build a massive airport there one day. Uh, some people ask me how I got there. Of course, it's pretty simple. You just fly in from Istanbul on Turkish Air, a uh, lovely wide-body jet, um, and uh, it takes about two and a half, three hours, and then you land in Erbil. Uh, it's it's uh, ha- very much has the feel that it has for years. The Kurds continue to develop. They continue to build. Um, but there are definitely some changes this time. Uh, one thing that has not changed is the welcome for Americans. I have to tell you, Um, That if I were a Kurd and I had endured as many betrayals as the Kurds have endured from the U.S., I'm not sure that I would be as welcoming, as loving, as open, uh, as encouraging, as eager for Americans to be in my country as the Kurds seem to be now. But um, it's very obvious, I think, that I'm I'm an American. I'm, you know, those of you who pay any attention to what I do, I'm 6'4", about 260. And uh, so they know I'm at least a European, if not an American. And and of course, as soon as I open my mouth, they know I'm American. Never a moment of any uh, resentment, never a dark look, never a rolling of the eyes, never anything but a welcome. And I have to tell you that that just amazes me. What what is most obvious on the ground to me are the half-built buildings. I think this is one of the real effects of the ISIS situation. Um, the, the Kurdish regional government, by way of its agreement with the government in Baghdad, received about oh, 17 to 19% of its income uh, from Baghdad. This was uh, you know, because of a combination of everything, foreign aid that Baghdad received, uh, oil revenues. This was part of the profit sharing, so to speak, uh, between Baghdad and the Kurds. Well, uh, this has been seriously hampered because of the situation with ISIS. And in addition to that, 
uh, you've had a great deal of interruption of trade, interruption of um, obviously oil revenues, interruption of business going back and forth, trucking, all of the things that support industries, particularly things that support construction. So as you drive around Erbil, as you drive around, uh, well, not so much Sulaymaniyah, but somewhat in Sulaymaniyah, as you drive around some of the other cities, but particularly in Erbil, the capital of the KRG, you see many, many half-built or partially built buildings. Either the construction is going very slowly uh, or it's not going at all. And this is a, this is a real tragedy because Erbil really was on a tremendous growth spurt. Um, now, that's not to say that, that there aren't buildings happening. There are a lot of new developments. There's a massive development happening called Empire um, obviously, the KRG is given to large corporations um, uh, this land. And there's a great big mixed-use development happening. But but on the sort of, uh, oh, let's say the Kurdish level of development, uh, sort of the, uh, the people, a local businessman building a business and then having the funds to go ahead and see it through, uh, that is seriously hampered right now. Uh, most of the major things that are happening in terms of development and business and uh, construction are happening from outside uh, companies and from foreign projects. And the main presence that you see that was not there as, as prominently last time are the Chinese. Chinese run hotels. Uh, the Chinese are building buildings. Uh, the Chinese are very, very active in that part of the world. And that, uh, that I think, should concern us a little bit. I'm glad for the money they bring into the country. I'm glad for the employment they provide. I'm glad for the construction they're doing. Uh, but I'm not sure that a uh, Chinese um, uh, influence on Kurdish culture is going to be a positive thing. So what you see on the ground is a dramatic slowdown of the development that was once there. You see a lot of unfinished buildings uh, you see a lot of construction sites without any evidence of anything moving forward. Um, you see a bit more unemployment um, and you see a lot of foreign presence. Now, you also hear constantly about ISIS and it's obvious um, that both the leaders and the people on the street are very concerned about ISIS. In fact, I would say that fear um, is definitely creeping into people's souls um, I met um, with a number of other people. When I refer to me meeting with people, I, I don't want to give you the impression again that I'm any big deal. Uh, I'm just part of a group or I'm with a couple of people who are meeting with senior officials. Um, but I was in a meeting with a, a senior official who said that he had lived in Sweden uh, with his family and had simply decided when things improved a bit that he had to go back to his homeland. He had to return to Kurdistan. But he also said uh, with sadness in his face that he said, I hope I didn't make a mistake. Because now he's got his family there in Kurdistan, and of course, you know ISIS is a is is not that far to the south, and uh, ISIS has not turned northward. It's not turned towards Kurdistan, um, and I'm not convinced that ISIS can 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 do the damage that they uh, chant that they can. Uh, nevertheless, it's obvious that uh, there's some degree of fear uh, amongst the Kurdish leaders. Uh, not too long ago, there was a. a a bomb put uh, placed in front of a uh, the, the the American consulate there. There have been uh, some shootings, um, nothing major, nothing beyond what has happened in times past. Uh, but still, it's enough to inspire some degree of fear. The thing that it's hard to convince people in the West of regarding the cruelty of ISIS um, is is really just how vile these people are. 
Um, I met with a, um, a judge, um, an Azidi judge, and I'm telling you, he, uh, he was a very good man, very kind guide. We met for many hours. I had lunch in his home. Um, he has lost 19 members of his family to ISIS, and he has two nieces um, and whom he, he does not know where they are. He does not know what's happened to them. They've been abducted. Think about what that would mean. That can mean white slavery somewhere else in the world. That can mean a sex slave to some ISIS uh, member. Uh, that can mean murdered. Uh, that can mean sold uh, anywhere within the Middle East. Um, he has no idea. Two beloved nieces, and they are just gone. Uh, and that's in addition to 19 family members killed. The story that just really put tears in my eyes and I think is very typical of ISIS um, is that ISIS is known for its rapes and it's known for its rapes of children. Um, it harkens back to uh, some beliefs about Muhammad and that he consummated marriages with very young women. Um, and so I, uh, ISIS members raped an eight-year-old girl raped an eight-year-old girl. Um, actually, there are, there are rapes on record of, of, of even younger children. But the reason that I reference this one, and this is going to be graphic for those of you who might have children listening, um, the reason that I reference this one is that this girl conceived. Now, I'll have to tell you that I didn't know that was possible. I think I'm fairly up on medical issues and sexual issues and what have you. But I did not know it was possible for this to happen. But this eight-year-old girl, as a result of a rape, conceived. Um, she was rescued, and she is now in France dealing not only with the emotional fallout from this rape, but also dealing with the physical results of this rape. And, um, now she's nine years old and, uh, you can Google this, by the way, this is not anything that I'm breaking the story on at all, but what a horrible, horrible situation. I mean, just unbelievable cruelty. And, um, I was shown pictures by, uh, people of their family members beheaded, um, their family members strung up. I mean, it's, it is a horrible, horrible thing. Um, ISIS is as about a demonic an organization as I've ever heard of. And um, you can imagine how that works on the minds and the hearts of the people who live in that part of the world. What a lot, what a lot of people in the West do not understand is that ISIS um, is, is, is not just a generic terrorist organization. Uh, it is a Sunni uh, organization, and therefore it is strongly anti-Shia and anti-Christian, uh, anti, in fact, anyone they do not consider to be uh, as Islamically pure as they are. And so what's happening in the Middle East, what's, what, what we may not be able to, some people in the West may not be able to piece together, um, is that you have a mounting Sunni-Shia tension. And of course, the big Shia player in the Middle East is Iran. And so they are increasingly trying to support the persecuted Shiites in Iraq um, and uh, trying to, to lend aid there at the same time that the Saudis, who have been funding ISIS until recently, by the way, are the primary um, protectors and, uh, and, and sort of the, the, the big brother to many of the Sunnis. So you have a Sunni-Shiite tension mounting. Um, ISIS, of course, is part of that on the Sunni side. Uh, this is increasingly bringing Iran into play in Iraq as Iraq implodes 
And it's not unlikely that, let's say, in the next four to five years, maybe even sooner, uh, you might have a massive Sunni-Shiite war, um, largely uh, funded, largely big-brothered by the Saudis and the Iranians. And this would be unbelievably uh, bloody. And of course, there in the middle of it would be our friends, the Kurds. So it's a it's a very very desperate situation. Um, it's a it's a situation that again I'll have to say I say with with gentleness uh, that many people in the West do not understand. Um, ISIS currently controls half of Syria and the entire, uh, almost the entire, of the Anbar province. You remember the phrase Anbar province from when the U.S. troops were there and. And some of the worst fighting was in the Ambar province, which is down in the south and uh, just to the west of Baghdad. So there's no question that right now the uh, that ISIS can, um, I think, pretty much if it wanted to concentrate its force, uh, could pretty much take over Syria. There's no question it could move on Baghdad now if it chose to. Uh, I think it's not choosing to. I think it's uh, choosing instead to control roads and access points, uh, rural areas. There's no question that... Um, part of what it wants to control are some of the dams that control flooding, uh, not only the water for Baghdad, but also uh, could potentially allow Baghdad to be flooded. Uh, these are the more strategic points that they're looking for. So the situation is dire. Uh, the Kurds are uh, continuing to develop, continuing to look to Washington, continuing to hope for Um, America to be friends and to be good, faithful friends for a change, Uh, continuing to be thankful for the aid they're receiving from Britain and especially from Germany. Germany has really stepped up in support of the Kurds. Uh, All of this is good news. But um, it is a very desperate situation over there. And um, I, and again, you, you just, you, when you use the phrase terror, the, the word terrorism, uh, we use that so freely now, but there's no question that true terror, uh, is spreading in the Middle East. You can see it on the eyes of the people, uh, in the eyes of the people, you can see it on the faces of the leaders. Uh, I'm going to bring this podcast to an end, but in my next podcast, I'm going to talk about some solutions. I'm going to talk about America's role. I'm going to talk about whether Iraq, uh, is going to survive. And I'm going to talk about the positive possibilities for that part of the world. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, and a frequent faith and culture commentator on CNN, Fox, and the Huffington Post. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and The Miracle of the Kurds. You can learn more about Stephen at stephenmansfield.tv and greatman.us and connect with him on Facebook and on Twitter under the name Mansfield Writes. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is produced by Isaac Darnell, who also wrote, performed, and produced the Rockin' Podcast theme song. Be sure to rate the Stephen Mansfield Podcast in the iTunes Store. This is a Chartwell Literary Group production.